Thanks, Dave. Morning, everyone. Uh, won't you grab a Bible while I'm sorting myself out? And head to Second Samuel, chapter six. That's where we're going to be this morning. Second Samuel, chapter six. If you are, if you're new here, you're visiting. My name's Doug. Like you heard, and I have the privilege of uh, leading the team here at Parkhurst. It's wonderful to have you with us this morning. And we are in the process of working our way through the the life of David, King David. Um, very famous uh, figure in the Old Testament, and uh, we're dealing with an interesting account this morning in Second Samuel chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible or a phone or whatever, these verses will be up on a screen behind me if you didn't come uh, prepared, but it's also good to have them in front of you because we're going to work our way slowly through the passage, uh, slightly different this morning. We're not going to read the whole thing up front. We're going to go and stop and go and stop and go and stop as we go through this. Um, before we dive into it, uh, I'm going to, like we do every week, uh, pray for us, pray for myself, uh, that the Lord would speak to us. That's what we're here for. We didn't come just to tick a box, to show up. No one's got an attendance register here. God's not impressed that you got out of bed in the cold to come here. We're here because we want to meet with God and hear from Him and be shaped by His Word. And in God's strange providence, this is how He does it. He does it through... Uh, feeble people like me who jump up and try and explain what God has revealed in His Word, and the Holy Spirit uses that to make us different people, to make us new people, and then to make us different. And so let's pray that God would continue that work with us again this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning that You love us, that You care for us like no one else does. And that in part of your care for us is that you continue to speak and you shape us and transform us. Not only have you brought us to yourself in relationship, but you long to transform us, to look like Jesus Christ. To have the same um, nature and characteristics of, of him who has loved us so that we would live lives of the fullest joy be useful to you, that we would be fully alive human beings. And you, you transform us through the shaping work of your word through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It amazes us how you do this week by week in our, and day by day in our, in our lives, but on Sundays when we gather like this. And so this morning we just pause and we look to you. And we ask you again, Father, that you would send the Holy Spirit amongst us to teach us. We long to hear your voice. We long to know when we leave this morning that we have met with the living God. We're not just going through the motions here, but you have spoken so clearly to us. You have done in our lives, in our hearts, what we most need this morning. And so we look to you for that work, for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, today we're going to be talking about the Ark of the Covenant. I guess so if you didn't grow up in church, didn't go to Sunday school or whatever, you might not know what the Ark of the Covenant is. I'm not going to ask you to stick your hand up if you know what it is or not, but I thought I'll start by explaining what the Ark of the Covenant is because the whole story today is about David moving the Ark of the Covenant and I don't want to just like dive in and be like, David moved the Ark of the Covenant and you spend the whole morning thinking, what the heck was that? Like, uh, what happened? So this 
Um, oh, okay, well, it's not as, as impressive looking as it is on my computer. Can you see that? Well, look, I mean, this is like the best picture I could find of the Ark of the Covenant. Okay? They haven't found the Ark of the Covenant, so this is not a real picture. I'm just trying to flush out all the conspiracy theorists, but we don't have any here, so, ah, disappointing. The Ark of the Covenant, what is it? This is a, this is a box. <laughs> I mean, it is uh, a box. It's not any old box, but it is a box. God gave instructions to his people, build a box. It's built of acacia wood, acacia wood and overlaid in gold. Okay, and then he told them to put on the top two cherubim and face them towards each other with outspread wings. And those two wings, as they touch each other, constitute what's called the mercy seat. It had rings on the, on the sides. We don't know if they were the top or the bottom. For poles to go through, for it to be moved around. It had to be carried on poles, so the rings are for the poles to go through kind of thing. It's about, it's about four, six feet long, about two feet wide. It's not a massive box, all right? And inside the Ark of the Covenant went what? Three things. First thing was the second set of tablets of the Ten Commandments. You remember the first set got smoked. They got trashed. Moses loses his cool and he throws them down and God has to rewrite uh, a second pair set for them. That set get put in the box. Another thing that gets added into the box, I should have smarties here. <laughs> hey, and Hannah, who knows what else is in the box? Just check in your memory. Yeah. Okay, let's second one. Okay, I don't have smarties. Next week you get smarties. What was the second thing? Okay, excellent. A jar of manna. Manna was what? The, the stuff that fell from heaven that fed the people in the wilderness. It's like bread-ish kind of thing. God told them, collect a jar of that stuff, put a jar, put it in the box. What was the third thing that went in the box? Ever? A staff, exactly. Aaron's staff that budded. Now some of you are thinking, what on earth? Like, it's, we didn't have time to read the whole thing this morning. But it showed, it proved that Aaron was a priest, that his line was the priestly line. They left these staffs out overnight, and his is, the one, his is the one that buds in the morning, and it proves this is the guy, it's his line that's going to be the priest. So God says, put the staff in the box. There's only three things in this box that gets carted around. It's those three things. Those three things are there to remind the people. Because remember, what's the greatest problem that God's people always have? Forgetfulness, absolutely. So the three things go in the box to remind them of what God has commanded, what God has provided, and who God is who rules over them. And this was not any old box. This is a box that God decided to descend upon. And it was his visible, tangible presence with the people of God. They would put it in the tent of meeting, very strict instructions for the people around how to care for the Ark of the Covenant, where to move it, what to do with it, what not to do with it. But God would speak to the people. You can read in the Old Testament, He would speak to the people as it were from between that mercy seat, from that mercy seat. God would speak to His people. When you speak to Moses, this is where God met uh, Moses, met God, was at the Ark of the Covenant. And it gets carried around. Um, and now I'm fast-forwarding to what brings us to where we are today. Um, the people started to treat 
the Ark of the Covenant like a bit like a lucky rabbit's foot. Have you, are any of you superstitious? You've got like your favorite undies uh, or, okay, maybe that's a bad one, um, like a, uh, a lucky key? A lucky t-shirt. I used to have a lucky t-shirt. It was a Milo shirt and then Claire got sick of it and threw it away. And my life has gone steadily downhill since I lost my lucky Milo t-shirt. I have not forgiven you for getting rid of my Milo t-shirt. The, the people of God used to treat this like a good luck charm. And what happened is that they, uh, they were fighting the Philistines and they were losing. And they decided, you know what we need? Our lucky rabbit's foot. And so they go and fetch the ark of God from where it is in Shiloh, where it had been for a while, and they bring it up. And they bring it up and they carry it out into battle. They think, if we've got the lucky rabbit's foot, we're going to beat these guys. You know what happens? They get their butts kicked. And the Philistines steal the ark. They take it. They're like, fine, you want to bring it with you? We're stealing this from you. It's obviously quite important. Looks like it's a significant thing. We're taking this. And the Philistines steal the ark, which seems like a good idea, but it's not. It's a really bad idea to mess with this box. With this God of the box, I should say. The Philistines take it, and what happens? All hell breaks loose with the Philistines. All hell. You can go and read all of this uh, in 1 Samuel. Uh, it's there. They, they, they take this. They only have the ark. They can only suffer having the ark of the covenant with them for seven months. All hell breaks loose. Everywhere the ark goes, people start breaking out in tumors. God, God afflicts them with tumors. They decide, you know what we're going to do? We're going to stick this thing in the temple of our God, Dagon. Dagon is their God who they worship in. They're going to put the ark next to the statue of Dagon. They think, there we go. That'll sort it out. Dagon will look after him. They wake up in the morning. They go, check out what's happened. The statue of Dagon has fallen over, head fallen off. They fix Dagon. This is what you have to do when you worship statues. You have to fix them. Uh, they fix it. They try again. Same thing happens again. They think this is a bad idea. Let's get this thing out of the temple. Dagon is obviously not suited to this challenge. But then they move it from city to city all around the Philistine territories. The Oaks are like, do you want the box? They're like, no. Tumors break out. They're like, hey, your turn with the box. They get the box. Tumors break out. They get the box. Everywhere it moves, guys are breaking out in tumors. Mice are um, infiltrating the land, eating all their crops. It's a mess. Eventually, they decide we don't want this box with us anymore. This belongs to them. They make a cart. They put the, the, the ark of God on a cart. They attach it to two cows, aim it in the direction of Israel, slap the cows on the butt. I'm not making this up. This is there. We just don't have the time to read it this morning. They slap the cows on the butt and they say, if this goes up the road, we'll know that this is God who afflicted us. If it goes down the road, we'll know it was just a happenstance. What happens? It goes up the road and it reminds them, hey, God afflicted you because you stole the box. Off it goes and it just goes in a straight line. The cows don't turn left or right. Eventually, they arrive in a field. And eventually they've got to stop somewhere. The, cows, the cart comes to a stop in the field of Joshua. Of, I have to scoot along here quickly. I've got all the details. Beth Shemesh. Beth Shemesh, this is now the town where it arrives. He's out there doing farmer things in his field. Over the horizon comes two cows. Hey, Anna, what is that? That looks like the Ark of the Covenant. Arrives, boom, in his field. He's like, oh gosh, you know, what do I do with this thing now? But because they're curious and forgetful and disobedient, 
they decide to check. Do you know that stupid game on 947, what's inside the box? Oh, do they still do that? That's the reason not to listen to the radio is that what's inside the box? They decide to check what's inside the box. Is the stuff still inside the box? Seventy of them have a look inside the box and you know what happens to them? Yeah, they all die. Yes, you guessed. Correct. I don't know if that was your guess, but you were correct if you guessed. Seventy people decide to look inside the box, see if everything is there. They're all dead. The people of Beth Shemesh reckon, I don't think we want this box with us anymore. Let's put, they put in a call to the guys from Kiriath to Jerim. It's a town not far away from there. They say, come and fetch the box. Take it with you. They take the box. And they put it in the house of a guy called Abinadab. His two, so first his one son, Eliezer, and then his two other sons. We'll meet them later in the story here. They decide to look after the box. And it spends how long? 30 years basically sitting in this guy's garage. Doing nothing. They just leave it in his house. The boys are looking after it. Sitting there. It's not doing what it's supposed to be doing. David, in the meantime... Obviously, he's a youngster. He's coming up, coming up. We heard last week, he becomes the king. He moves. He takes Jerusalem. He moves. He makes that his, his, his city that he's going to rule from. And he decides, you know what we need here? We need the Ark of the Covenant here. And he decides to move the Ark from Kiriath-Jerim to Jerusalem. That is like the longest introduction to a sermon. We have not even got to the passage Yet, we're now going to read the start of 2 Samuel chapter 6. This is what's all happened. Now David decides to move the Ark of the Covenant. So, from verse 1, David again assembled all the fit young men in Israel, 30,000. He and all his troops set out to bring the Ark of God from Baal, Judah. It's just another name for Kiriath Jerim. The ark bears the name, the name of the Lord of armies who is enthroned between the cherubim. They set the ark of God on a new cart and transported it from Abinadab's house, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the cart and brought it with the ark of God from Abinadab's house on the hill. Ahio walked in front of the ark. David and the whole house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all kinds of fir, wood instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, systems, and cymbals. When they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah reached out um, to the ark of God, took hold of it because the oxen had stumbled. Then the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah, and God struck him dead on the spot for his irreverence, and he died there next to the ark of God. David was angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, so he named that place Outburst Against Uzzah. <laughs> it's not a very creative uh, name, as it is today. David feared the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? So he was not willing to bring the ark of the Lord to the city of David. Instead, he diverted it to the house of Obed-Edom of Goth. Let's just stop there for now. This, this account should cause you just to pause. That's why we're stopping as well. Sometimes you can read the Bible and just like we just read, read, especially some of the stuff that happens in the Old Testament. We're like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm-hmm. Uh, and Uzzah reaches out and touches the ark. Okay, I'm not going to rehash the whole thing, but basically they, they've got it on a cart. It's going along. It's, it's about to fall off. The oxen have stumbled and it looks like it's going to fall off. Uzzah reaches out and stops. And when you read it, 
it reads like Uzzah's doing a good thing, doesn't it? Your natural reaction, most of us, we're like, poor Uzzah. I mean, the guy's just trying to stop the ark from falling off the cart. Jeez, God, are you having a bad day? Or what was going on? Like, you struck the oak down dead because he, he tried to stop the ark from falling off the cart. Like, it should cause you to think, what is going on here? Is God mean? Is God being unfair? What is happening in, in the story? Is God like that? Is God mean and unfair? Is God um, prone to outbursts? Some people think that's what God is like. And, and, and you live your life towing the line, praying that God doesn't burst out against you. So you're a rule keeper and a law abider and you just hope you don't put a foot wrong and end up Uzzah-like dead next to the ark of God, as it were. We have to look at the story and say, what is this trying to teach us? And I think the first thing, we're going to look at three things around the presence of God. And the first thing that this passage teaches us is about the holiness of the presence of God. The holiness of the presence of God. God is not like us. God is not like us. God is holy, perfect, pure, without any imperfection in all of who he is and in all of his ways. There is never, ever any deficiency in God. There's no character, whoopsie. There's nothing he's working on. God has never put a foot wrong. God has never made a mistake. God has no malice in him. God is perfect and pure and holy in every single thing he is and every single way he acts. God is holy and he is different to you and I. There is a division between who God is and what we are like. And what you see here is God's people experiencing some of the holiness of God that they had forgotten about. They had forgotten and disregarded the holiness of God, and it doesn't end well for Uzzah. Why do I, why do I say that there's disregard? God, I said this earlier, God was very, very clear around the instructions around that Ark of the Covenant. He's very, very clear about how it was meant to be made, what needed to go inside of it, how to treat it, and how to move it. It wasn't like a surprise to the people. It's all detailed, and they all knew how to treat the Ark of the Covenant. And what do you see happening here? Did you see the detail there? They put the Ark of the Covenant on a new cart. Isn't that impressive? They built a whole new purpose-built cart to move this thing. Because you know what? Carrying it is such a schlep. We could just put it on a cart because the Philistines, they use the cart to get it to us. What a brilliant idea. Hey, let's build a new cart. We're not going to use that cart. I mean, it's 30 years on. You know, maybe it's fallen apart. We'll make him a new cart. That's impressive. Then we can just wheel this thing the 15 kilometers from Kiriath Sherim to Jerusalem instead of having to carry this thing. What a mission. It seems like a good idea. But God had been explicitly, explicitly clear. When you move this thing, you need to cover it. You need to carry it. And the only people allowed to carry it are Levites. It's not hidden information. It's all abundantly clear to the people of God. When you move it, cover it, carry it, 
and only let it be carried by Levites. And what did they decide to do? They put it on a cart. That's the reason it's falling off the cart. And it looks like Uzzah's doing a good thing. It looks to us like, oh, he's reaching out trying to stop the cart. He's one of the brainiacs who put it on the cart in the first place because he was babysitting the cart there for like 30 years. It was partly his idea to put it on a thing and not have it carried according to God's plan. It's flagrant disobedience. It looks like he's doing a good thing, but he's actually living out of complete disobedience to what God had instructed. You know what is the most amazing part of this account? The most amazing part of this account is that only Uzzah dies. That's the most amazing part of this account, is that it's only one person dies. They were all deserving of death. They were all, God is acting here, not in a hot-headed way, but in extravagant mercy to his disobedient and foolish people. It looks like God's mean, isn't it? It looks like God just flies off the handle and he zaps Uzzah down. He's just showing them. He's showing one. There's one representative who dies on behalf of all the people for their collective disobedience. Only one dies. When all of them, David included, should have been struck down for their flagrant disobedience in the face of the clear instruction of God, moving the very presence of God given to his people. It's a story of grace, not of judgment. Because when we think we know better than God, your life will always go sideways. When God says, don't do this, and you do it, don't be surprised by the results. When those things don't happen, all you're experiencing is the mercy and the grace of God. We never, ever know better than what God has said. When God says no, he means no. When he says do, he means do. And the people of God encounter the holiness of God and the clear instruction of God. And it's, it's, it should arrest us. So, Lord, would you help us? Would you help us? Because we so often live our lives thinking we've got a much better plan. Oh God, I want to understand what you're saying. We'll weigh it up as a suggestion. If we feel like it, we'll obey if not, we won't. And yet you see the disastrous effects of the people of God disobeying him. And how does David respond? Well, he responds in anger and in fear. He's upset with God. He calls the place outburst against Uzzah. David is angry with God for his and Uzzah's disobedience to the clear instruction of God. Isn't that weird? Do you notice anything in your life like that? When you disobey God, there's consequences that don't fit with the plan you have for your life and who's, who, who you bleak with. You're bleak with God. You're not bleak with yourself. You're like, ah. And he's afraid of God. He says, okay, this, uh, I'm not bringing this box. This Ark of the Covenant is not coming home with us, with me. I've just seen what's happened here. He puts a call into Obed-Edom and he's like, okay, but here we go. I'm going to come in to park this thing at your house. You can imagine them arriving at Obed-Edom. You know, with the ark, say, but we just need to keep this thing here for a little bit. Obedium's like, what does happen? He said, no, no, nothing, nothing. We just, uh, <clears throat> just think it'd be great to leave it here with you for a little bit. Uh, you know, don't ask any details. Don't ask too many questions. We're just going to park it over here uh, at your house. I'll explain later why it was the best idea to park it there. It's where they should have been. 
where it should have been. But I want to ask you the question, how do you respond? How do you respond when God doesn't fit into the neat little box that we have reduced him into? And he acts outside of that box, in his perfection, in his holiness, in his power, and he does whatever he wants to do. How do you respond to that? Because it tells us a lot of how we have domesticated God, shrunk him down, minimized him, placated him, tried to massage him down into something that's manageable and controllable. Oh, okay, yeah, we've got a God who we have our hand, our head around and our hands on. And the Bible again and again is it paints to say, God is not like that. God will not be kept in a box. God will not be controlled and God will not be disobeyed. He is holy. He is other. He is different. And he requires worship. Not, not negotiation. He requires obedience and worship. Let's keep going with our story Verse 11, the ark of the Lord remained in his house three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his whole family. It was reported to King David, the Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's family and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. Guys, this story is not just about the holiness of the presence. It's also about the goodness of the presence of God. And you'll find yourself somewhere, as usual with us, on a spectrum. You've got some people who fear the holiness of God. You fear God, or you know others who fear God. That's your primary means of relating to God. And to be honest, this is normally people who've grown up with overbearing parents, where you had to keep the rules and stuff, and your image of God has been borrowed from parents who just, lots of right and wrong, lots of rules, lots of legalism. And you relate to God and you think God's happy with you when you keep the rules and you think he's upset with you when you break the rules. And it's transactional. And you think God's, like I said, you think he's impressed when you come to church, when you read your Bible, when you string together a couple of quiet times. It's this kind of weird transactional relationship you have with God, but it's grounded in a fear. Sometimes a fear of his holiness. That's on the one end. On the other end, so it's a people who have an exaggerated view of the holiness of God. On the other end is the goodness people who believe that God exists for your joy and your comfort and just to lavish goodness over you. This gone wrong is the heart of the prosperity gospel. They hijack the passages of the scriptures that talk about God's goodness and kindness over your life and his, and, and his joy and his provision towards you. And they just camp there. And God, you're just the apple of God's eye. That's all you are. And all God exists to do is to make you happy and to bless you and stuff like that. And don't worry so much about your sin. God's not worried about that. He took care of it with Jesus. It's just lacquer. Everything is cool between you and God. Don't worry about all that holiness stuff. All those guys who get all up, uptight about their sin and confessing things. And when Doug talks about repenting, he's just exaggerating things. It's all cool. This gone wrong is an overemphasis on the gospel of grace. Devoid of any pursuit of holiness. This is an overemphasis on holiness devoid of a gospel of grace. And the Bible paints those two things together for us. That we worship a God of absolute holiness drenched in the gospel of grace. And the one doesn't negate the other. We hold them together because God is happy to have himself held together in those things. Which side do you lean 
towards. Because here we see Obed-Edom, he is a Levite. He is a Levite. He's one of the guys who's meant to be carrying the box. And what does God do when the box arrives at his house? I should stop calling it the box, but it's easier than saying the Ark of the Covenant of the God. What happens when the box arrives at his house? God blesses him. He blesses not only him, his whole family get blessed. Because why? Because the presence of God is there with him. It's so lacquer to read that. When you read that, you should say, Lord, would you just continue to bless me, bless my house, bless my kids, because we live under the presence of God. There is a blessing that comes to the pre- through the presence of God. If you're a parent child, this is what you should pray for your home. God, as you Christian parents, that your kids live under the blessing, even whether they know God or not, they live under the blessing of the presence of God because you worship Him and you follow Him, whether they've got it figured out or not yet. There is a goodness to the presence of God that nothing else can touch. And we should long for it. Verse 13, end of verse 12. David hears about this blessing on Obed-Edom. We don't know if this is, he's like, "Mm, I want to be sharing in that blessing. I don't want him being blessed. We don't know David's motives. But there's a three-month time for David to think about what they did wrong. So David went and had the ark of God brought up from Obed-Edom's house to the city of David with rejoicing. When those carrying the ark of the Lord advanced six steps He sacrificed an ox and a fattened calf. David was dancing with all his might before the Lord, wearing a linen ephod. He and the whole house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of the ram's horn. Let's just keep reading. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Saul's daughter Michal looked down from the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent David had pitched for it. Then David offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings in the Lord's presence. When David had finished offering the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of armies. Then he distributed a loaf of bread, a date cake, and a raisin cake to each one in the the entire Israelite community, both men and women. Then all the people went home. When David returned home to bless his household, Saul's daughter Michal came out to meet him. How the king of Israel honored himself today, she said. He exposed himself today in the sight of the slave girls of his subjects like a vulgar person would expose himself. David replied to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me over your father and his whole family to appoint me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will dance before the Lord. And I will dishonor myself and humble myself even more. However, by the slave girls you spoke about, I will be honored. And Saul's daughter, Michal, had no child to the day of her death. The third thing I want us to see here is the joy. The joy of the presence of God. You see what they finally get right? Did you see as we started reading that they finally figured out they needed to carry this thing? No more more carts. Levites, Levites are carrying it, the house of Obed-Edom, the men who are supposed to be carrying it, they're carrying the ark of God. And what is happening? 
they are paying the presence of God and the holiness of God due respect. There's different interpretations of this, but it says that every six steps, they stop and worship and sacrifice. Every six steps. It's a 15-kilometer journey from Kiryat Jerim to Jerusalem. One, two, three, four, five, six. Stop. Worship. Kill something. Sing. One, two, three. I mean, I'm not a mathematician, but it's going to take a long time to do that because they are showing the appropriate awe, the appropriate awe for the presence of God. And it's not just awe, it's joy. You can't help but read this passage and just be struck by this bursting out of joy in the presence of God. David has had three months to think this through and to get this right, and he leads the people. And what does it say? It says, David danced with all his might. With all his might. He's not doing some random Madiba shuffle uh, in front of the ark, like, oh, this is quite fun, you know? Like, it says he is dancing. He's doing 15 kilometers of dancing with all of his might. You know, I can't make it through a half an hour Zumba class kind of thing. I mean, David must have been in good condition there. The Lord helped him to dance before the ark of the covenant. For 15 Ks, stopping every six steps to worship God. They've got the whole band out there, trumpets, horns, lyres, the works. They rally the nation and they are doing it. It's not a casual thing. And I, I want to, you can't help but be struck by this when you read this. The difference between David moving the Ark of the Covenant from Kiriath Jerim to Jerusalem and the average worship service that you find yourself in. Not because of the worship service, because of the condition of your own heart. How many of you have stood here singing to the same God? In the same God's presence. Wondering if you locked your car. Or what you're going to have for lunch. Or what's that strange smell? Well, I wonder if the person next to me knows me. Your mind is a million. My mind is often, I'm not judging. I'm pointing out that sometimes we come to God in the most irreverent way. We rush in late. We bleak the coffee team have packed away the coffee already. Even though we're 15 minutes late for a service that starts at nine. Anyhow. And in we squeak, hearts not ready to meet with the living God. Now, I'm not dumping on you for being late. I'm saying if you want to get the most out of coming to meet with God, you have to get your heart ready. You see it again and again in the pages of Scripture when God's people come to God, they come ready. And they make it a big, big deal to come and meet with the living God. We have a very dumbed-down view. We think we're going to gather together, sing a few songs. Doug's going to speak for a bit. Then we're going to go and have more coffee, and it'll be cool. And you know what? All you get then is that. I've been parts of other gatherings where you know everyone in the room is desperate to meet with God. And you know what? In some strange kindness of God, he does that. And I've had multiple, I've been a professional Christian for a while. I've had multiple uh, gatherings where God has been so kind to us to just allow the joy of his presence to come amongst us in ways that have been overwhelming. Overwhelming. And no one's in a hurry. 
Remember one time we were in Germany worshiping? We just worshiped, and we worshiped, and then we sat and we waited. And we just kept quiet. It felt like the most appropriate thing to do. Then we read the scriptures, and then we worshiped again, and then we sat quiet again. Six, seven hours had passed. No one was clock watching. No one was clock watching. Guys, when you read your Bible properly, and you see people encounter the presence of God, there's no more clock watching happening. And my plea for you is that you pray that we would be a community like that. Not that we would have church all Sunday, every Sunday. Some of you are going to leave. That's okay. I'm not saying that. I'm saying we come with a deep desire to meet with the living God. And not just to tick off a box that, oh, we've come and we've done this thing. Why? Because it's the very best thing for us. The joy of the presence and the goodness of the presence of God is the best thing for you. Some of us are living with impoverished, impoverished souls. Your life feels strung out. You're hanging by a thread. You're exhausted. You know what you need? You need the joy of the presence of God. You don't need a holiday necessarily. You don't need a raise. You don't need a million other things. You may think you need the presence of God to strengthen you, to love you, and to grace you. Why is David dancing with all of his might? Because he knew the God that he was worshiping. He was ready for that day. He was ready. God had sustained him. We've, we're not going to re-preach every sermon. This is the God who had sustained him in the wilderness, anointed him, loved him, helped him, rescued him. He is dancing with all of his might because he knew the God that he was worshiping. And if you struggle to worship, it's because you haven't spent time having God reveal more and more of who he is to you. But his singing, there's a couple other things I want to point out to you. His singing is not, the worship is not just singing and dancing. Something that jumped out at me in this passage is also about generosity. It says there, David dishes out what? Um, raisin cakes, date cakes, whatever. I don't know. It doesn't sound very appealing. But anyway, it must have been a, a hit back then. And he dishes them out. Every man and every woman in the whole, um, the whole gathering, they all get. Out of the abundance, the king blesses and shows generosity. That's what happens when God gets a hold of your heart. Generosity is a natural outflow. Some of you don't give. Some of you don't worship God with your finances. You think everything that you have belongs to you. And you, I'm not going to tell you that you should start giving. I'm going to tell you that you're only going to start giving as joyful, as a joyful giver when God gets a hold of your heart. We don't have time to go into the details of this, but don't think that you can outgive God. God adds to David. More and more and more. He can't give it to the people quick enough. That's how God works. When you get a hold of kingdom generosity. That's part of worship is giving. We don't take up an offering here. We let you give online. You can hoid in the bags at the back. You don't have to give. But when God gets a hold of our hearts, that's a natural thing. We want to worship God generously. We want to be generous to others. It's a part of our worship. The last thing I want you to see here is that when you worship God as an extravagant worshiper, some people are going to think you are nuts. Some people are going to tell you just to turn it down a little bit. Calm the farm. 
edgy, getting a bit into this Christian thing. Just relax a little, man. David's wife, Michal, gives him this speech. And it's interesting, you read this, she's referred to three times in this passage as what? Not as David's wife, Saul's daughter. She's got her dad's spirit in her. She doesn't even know the God David's worshipping. She doesn't know. She's called the daughter of Saul, not David's wife. I don't think she even knew God. And she looks down. She's not part of the procession. She thinks this is beneath her. And she looks down and she judges them with all the judginess in the world. And she is upset with David. You're the king. How can you belittle yourself and carry on like this in front of everyone? That's not what we do. We're royals. We stand on the balcony and wave. We don't get there dancing and breaking it down with the riffraff there. That's not how we roll. David says, what? I don't care. Shut up. That's what he says. He says, what? It wasn't before you. It was before the Lord. I wasn't dancing for you. And I wasn't dancing for them. I was dancing for him. He says it to her twice. It was for the Lord. I was dancing before the Lord. Guys, you need to get your head around this. R.T. Kendall wrote a book years ago that completely shaped my view of worship. It's called The Audience of One. The Audience of One. When you come to worship God, yeah, we do it collectively, but who cares who's next to you? Who cares if they can sing? Who cares if they've got their hands in the air, what they're doing? You're not worried about that. Yes, we worship collectively, communally, but you worship for the audience of one. We come and we live our lives before the audience of one. There's only one whose opinion really matters over your life. And it's the one who made you and called you to himself. So if you want to stick your hands in the air like you just don't care, do it. If you want to kneel, if you want to dance, knock yourself out. Don't knock anyone else out around you, you know. We don't have enough space to really get into the dancing here. But dance. I would say when it comes to the worship of God, you should never go beyond the Bible, but you shouldn't go beneath the Bible. So if you see it in the Bible, go for it. The Bible commends the raising of hands, the bending of knees, trumpets, horns, lyre, ribbons. I'm going to get myself into trouble here. Flags, dancing. Knock yourself out. Now all of you are like, I'm not ever coming back to this church again. Someone's coming, someone's coming with a flag next week. Flags at the back, dancers in the front. We need decorum here, otherwise you can't see if you have a flag. I went to a church with a mate of mine, a good mate. I didn't know they were a flag-waving church. We've been like mates for ages. I'd never been in this church. I got there. I'm like, what is going on? They've got containers in the front. They start dishing out flags to all the people in the front. I've never had like, I'm like, eyes closed. Oh, I love you, Jesus. If I keep my eyes closed, they can't give me a flag. I'm like, eyes are closed. They bypass me. It was like the Passover. It felt like the Passover me. Everyone else gets a flag. I'm standing there. I'm trying to sing. And there's this flipping flags as I'm wafting over my head. And I was the grumpiest person in the room. <laughs> I'm not saying we're introducing flags. I'm saying the Lord taught me something that day about my own grumpiness. I'm not a big person on flags, but the people waving the flags, they were having the time of their lives, man. And there was a tangible sense of the joy of the presence of God in that place. We need a bit of that. You need a bit of that. No, you don't need a bit. You need a lot. You need a lot of the joy. We need the joy of the presence because we are before the Lord.
And we do it for the audience of only one. As we close, we come to communion. There's one line that stands out in this. David says, how can the ark of God come to me? When Uzzah gets tricked, how, can the, how is the presence of God ever going to end up with me? And for those of us who know how the story develops, we know that this is another pointer to Jesus. How, how does the holiness, the presence, the joy come to us? It comes in a man. It comes in a man who was willing to lay aside some of his holiness and all of his privileges and become a man and walk the earth amongst us and die on a cross in our place for our sin and be raised to newness of life so that he could impart the same to us and send the Holy Spirit of God amongst us so that not just on one day, but for every day that you walk with him, you would know and be indwelt with the presence of God. And then if you're a believer in Jesus, you sit here this morning indwelt by the presence of God. You don't need to carry around a box. You don't need to go somewhere to meet him. He has filled you because he's come to take up residence within you. And when we come together, the Bible describes us as living stones, building together God's temple. God comes amongst us in different ways. And so as we come to celebrate communion, I want us to remember the God who came amongst us. How can God ever come to us? There's our answer. Is that He comes in Jesus. And if you're here this morning, you're not a, you're not a believer in Jesus. This is, this is how you get to know God. This is how you become a Christian. It's through Jesus. He forgives your sin. He takes your place and he offers you newness of life and joy in relationship with God. It's not a duty-bound, keeping the rules thing. It's life-giving and joy-filling. and It'll change you forever. And as we come to eat and to drink, remember we're not getting up anymore. We, the guys will hand out the communion stuff. You just pass it up and down the rows. If you don't want to take it, just keep passing it along. And we're going to eat and drink in your own time as we prayerfully sit in the presence of God. And if you are lacking in joy and awe and wonder of God this morning, I want to encourage you just to take a couple of minutes before you eat and drink. And so God, would you in your kindness fill my rusty, cantankerous heart with a fresh infusion of joy in your presence this morning. That you hit those doors, a joy-filled person, because that's God. You're not trying to wrest something out of God's hands. You're not trying to wrestle something away from him. God is the joy-giving one. And he longs to fill you with his presence in new ways again this morning. So let's sit before him and enjoy him. If you're part of the team handing out the communion, please can you get onto that? Team are going to lead us as we worship. Let me pray for us as we come to God this morning. Father, more than anything else that we, that we may think we need this morning, we need uh, your presence amongst us and within us.
as we wait on you now, we pray for a renewed sense of the holiness of God amongst us. That you're not a God to be trifled with. You're not a God to be approached um, casually. We, we thank you. We thank you that in your mercy, you sent your own son. So that those of us who place faith in him are covered by him. We're able to know you and we're able to come to you not on the basis of ourselves, but on the basis of who he is and what Jesus has done. And so your holiness doesn't consume us. It doesn't consume us because we are covered by the Holy One and our lives exist in him. And we worship you for that this morning. It blows our minds that you would do that for us. Take those who are unholy and make them holy. And invite us into your presence, not just now, but forevermore. And allow us to approach you and to be with you and to enjoy you. And I pray for us this morning that you would fill this place with the glory and the wonder and the joy of your presence. How we need this, Father. We, we're so easily satisfied with just lesser things. spend so much of our energy running around after lesser things when what awaits us is the joy of the presence of God and so as we wait on you this morning as we eat and drink and remember you Jesus I pray that you would fill us that you would fill this place that you would spark in our hearts new joy in you Fill us with new power, new desire for yourself. Where our hearts are dry and weary and wandering, draw us, draw us back to you again this morning. Capture us with the wonder of who you are again. We love you and we worship you. And we thank you, Father.